Welcome to Grace and Truth with Father George Rutler. Join Father Rutler as he talks about Catholic culture and doctrine, including grace, goodness, laughter, and humility. Here now is Father Rutler. There are two ways to write a history of a period. One is to write it when you're living it. The eyewitness. The narrative poems of the Greeks and the Romans were precisely that. You're living in the heat of day. You can smell the battle and you've met the people. First-hand experience tells the truth as much as we can tell the truth mingled with our own prejudices. But the other way to tell a history is to wait, to gain perspective as, a, as, a, as an artist moves away from the canvas. Uh, so must a few generations move away from an age to get a better perspective. I suppose this is why popular writers and figures of historical interest tend to fade away in the public eye for a period as soon as they die. The initial fascination is gone and we have to digest who they were, what they did, and what they meant. Whenever some telling analysis of the 20th century is written of a political or economic or philosophical nature, and certainly above all of a theological nature, it could be written uh, on a computer for the 20th century gave us the computer. It could be written with laser beams for the 20th century gave us the laser beam. But more accurately, it will have to be written in blood. The 20th century saw more blood than all other ages combined. When we look down the record of the great accomplishments of that extraordinary space of a hundred years, we can easily be dazzled by the gifts, the inventions, the insights, and how the age was able to communicate these things. At the same time, we have to wonder, how was it that so much good, and indeed so much greatness could have been mingled with so much blood. Just look at the statistics. In the 20th century, in China alone, as far as can be estimated, some 60 million people were killed in the Soviet Union, over 20 million uh, at least. In Cambodia, two million, which in proportion to the population probably represented the worst genocide in human history. Another two million killed in, in North Korea. At least a million in, in Eastern or Central Europe. Uh, 1.7 million in Africa. One and a half million in Afghanistan. At least a hundred and 50,000 in Latin America. And these statistics I'm giving are apart from 
the world wars, these statistics are of murders committed in the name of the most lurid denial of God, Marxism. To deny God is to deny life. The Nazis knew that. That's why they had to declare certain races subhuman before they could or try to wipe them out. The Jews, chosen by God to be his first revelation, incited the enemies of God to the point of what we know as the modern Holocaust. The church spoke out for life. Liars lie about that. Most recently we've had a most extraordinary cataract of lies about the church and the church's Pope Pius XII in those dismal days. Yet the record of history, the news reports and the major journals of the day cry out against those lies. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. To deny Christ is to usher in the shedding of blood. Those statistics I gave uh, shocked the world when they were published just a few years ago by a French writer, Stéphane Courtois, in the Black Book of Communism. Why was the world shocked? By the end of the 20th century we were used to the shedding of blood, but large portions of our society denied the malignancy of institutionalized atheism. Marxism was looked upon as an experiment motivated by benign intention and when it showed its evil hand, many pseudo-sophisticates looked uh, the other way. In the sixth chapter of the book of Proverbs, we are told that amongst the things abominable to God is the shedding of innocent blood. There is a distinction made there between the shedding of blood and the shedding of innocent blood. It is the distinction between killing and murder. There are times, for instance, in self-defense, in noble wars, fought for right intention, that, as St. Thomas Aquinas says, one is morally derelict if one does not fight. And that fighting may consequentially involve the shedding of blood. But the shedding of innocent blood is another thing. God has given us life as the author of life. We cannot create, we can only procreate. As stewards of creation, we pass on life biologically and morally. We cultivate the intellect and the will of the soul. But because the human being 
is in the image of God and capable by an act of the will of loving him uh, who loves uh, us. All human dignity rests in reverence for the innocence of life. Our life is frail. We have inherited the tendency to rebel against the Lord of life. St. Paul uh, analyzes himself. The good I do, I, I would do, I do not. The evil I, I would not do, that I do. Miserable wretch that I am. But he doesn't leave it at that. With the spirit of great joy, in hope, in faith, in a weaving together of the tapestry of those three theological virtues, St. Paul realizes and declares that Christ can get him out of that bind. The ability to procreate life goes hand in hand with the ability to shed the blood. The state is invested with a special responsibility to protect life, to promote the tranquility of order. And that, on occasion, it involves uh, the use of disciplines to deter and punish those who do shed innocent blood. The authority of the state to make these difficult decisions, even sometimes to the point of life and death, is not given to the state by any ecclesial power. It is given to the state by God. Therefore, as Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, bear in mind, you would have no power over me whatsoever were it not given you from above. Our Lord does not deny Pilate's right to execute, but he's telling Pilate that that power does not originate with him or with Caesar in Rome. It comes from heaven, from the same God who gives us the gift of life. And therefore, when the state exercises its authority over life and death, it must be above all guided uh, by the vision of the sacredness of life. Our Holy Father, the Pope, has a paradoxical phrase, become what you are. But it's not really a contradiction. A paradox is not a contradiction. A paradox is a truth that seems a contradiction only when we don't see the full picture. When our Holy Father says, become what you are, he's first of all reminding us that we were made in the divine image, but that image has to be recovered. And that's why we have the sacraments. That's why we have grace. That's why we have invested in our social institutions, in the church, and to begin with, in the unity of man and woman, in the family, the solemn responsibility to protect innocent life. There was an interesting man, a Maestro Teta, in the 19th century, who lived into his 80s as the official papal executioner. Very few people know about him today, but he was very well known in his own day. 
He personally executed uh, approximately 500 people in the Papal States uh, in the exercise of justice. Largely did this during the pontificate of Pius IX, who's uh, now uh, uh, being declared Beatus, uh, a blessed. This should indicate to us that the exercise of capital punishment is not malum in se, as is the shedding of innocent blood. In other words, it is not evil by its very existence, but it can be twisted, it can be perverted, and the highest authorities in the church remind us today that it is of such a solemn order and is exercised in a society so contemptuous of life that we must be very judicious indeed in its exercise. But one muddies the water if one equates the legitimate exercise of this civil power with the shedding of innocent blood. How ironic it is that some of the voices most outspoken against the executioners, the murderers, want to promote contraception, abortion, euthanasia. They are living a contradiction of God's plan. They have defied a holy innocence. And that's why shedders of innocent blood have to use language that lies, euphemisms. Abortionists now often are called health care providers. Well, that's rather like calling an axe murderer a cutlery provider. People who promote abortion say they are pro-choice. All that manifests, besides their own guilt, is bad grammar. To choose is a transitive verb. It needs an object. If someone says he's pro-choice, he must finish the sentence. Choice of what? And if the individual does not want to complete the sentence, he's betraying his own guilt. The great 20th century theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar said that everywhere outside Christianity, the child is automatically sacrificed. That is not exaggerated language. History shows it to be true. Whenever the dignity of the human person founded in the redemptive power of Christ is ignored, the selfish pride of man will find some excuse to wipe out innocent life. With an indescribable sorrow from the cross, our Lord show, saw innocent life being scattered to the very end of time, as well as back to the very beginning of time. All the body parts of the at least 40 million babies that have been uh, killed since the Roe versus Wade decision in the United States, those were before his eyes very beginning of the human race, the second generation of the human race, Cain slew Abel. And God says to Cain, thy brother's blood cries from the ground. Thy brother. When the population of the world was one family, it was more clear 
that each one of us is a brother, a sister. As the populations increased and as the generations moved on, it was much easier to reduce people to statistics. But God never looks upon us as a statistic. The stigmatist, the great miracle worker, and above all the man of heroic virtue, Padre Pio, raised to the altars, was once approached by a pilgrim who gushed out, Father, you are all things to all people. Padre Pio replied, No, I am all things to one man. Each one of us can say that, looking at Christ. No one was more innocent than he. His birth was washed in the blood of innocence. And the same cry that must have uttered from the lips of Eve when she found lying on the ground her dead son, Abel, his eyes glassy, his body cold and unmoving as she had never seen life before. That same cry moved through the history of the Jews, indeed through the history of all the human race. Rachel, weeping for her children because they were no more. The cry that was heard in Bethlehem when Herod raised his hand against the innocent. Why did he do it? To secure his own will. We can be certain that that night in Bethlehem everyone wept. In the whole land there was distress panic except uh, for Herod. Herod never slept more soundly than he did the night he had innocent blood shed. He thought he had secured his crown and he was very content. Content but not happy. In a recent survey of American voters, one newspaper said that the vast majority of Americans in our present economy seem very content, but not happy. The very people who govern national affairs if we let them who speak about legalizing the shedding of innocent blood and preserving that crime on the statute books of a so-called civilized people, the same people who see nothing wrong with the shedding of innocent blood, will speak of child welfare. This is the kind of schizophrenia that a world buys into when it has lost its innocence. In a recent state of the Union Address, we were told that the state of our country has never been better. I am not qualified uh, to analyze that in detail. I do know 
with some experience of history that when someone says that kind of thing our ears should perk up. 1912 the Titanic was declared an unsinkable ship. In the 1930s we were guaranteed peace in our time. This is dangerous language. It is not the language of innocence, it is the language of naivete. Naivete is the world's substitute for innocence. True innocence came into the world in Christ. True innocence hung on the cross. And by the shedding of his blood, he was able to bring back innocence into the world. That's really what is meant by being born again. We know more about the body's blood now than we ever have. Recently, the genetic pattern has uh, been on display by scientists as we've never seen before. And it has astonished the world to see the complexities of what constitutes our physical being. But Christ sees not only the DNA he's made, he doesn't see only the genome pattern, he sees what is in the heart of man. I'm speaking here in a church in New York City which serves traditionally some of the French in population and that's why there are so many French saints depicted here right behind me the great saint of the 13th century and king of France Louis the ninth Capetian king well at the end of a long succession of kings was the 16th Louis bearing the name of this holy man his life was quite different, and so was the life of his queen, Marie Antoinette. They died by the hands of revolutionaries. The fate of their son, until just recently, was disputed. Some thought that the boy had been kidnapped or spirited away. Now we know that he did die in prison a terrible, isolated, cruel death. His heart was preserved in the Church of Saint-Denis. But only the modern discovery of the analysis of DNA has enabled us to know that it really was his heart. The surgeon at his autopsy uh, preserved the heart. The surgeon's uh, manservant stole the heart and through a very complicated series of events it was entrusted to a future Archbishop of, of Paris. Now it is to be interred with some royal ceremony uh, with uh, the mother and the father. We can analyze in detail blood we can slice apart the organ we call the heart. But innocence is of another matter. Only Christ can measure that.
it was a Catholic monk, Father Gregor Mandel, as far as we know, who first uh, formulated the hypothesis of uh, the human gene. He, he called it a, a factor. And as the science of genetics progressed, people very full of themselves and quite empty of God thought that that was all there was to human existence. And so they began to have contempt for the dignity of human innocence and think, I do think, that it was salutary that the scientists involved in the latest patterning of the human genetic fact approached what they had discovered with greater humility that scientists have in the past. One of these scientists, Dr. Francis Collins, a Catholic, at the announcement of this discovery, the patterning of the genomic miracle of the body, quoted the 18th century uh, Catholic poet, uh, Alexander Pope, Know then thyself, presume not God to scan. The proper study of mankind is man. When we look into an innocent human heart, there will we see the Lord of life. Please join us again next time for Grace and Truth with Father George Rutler on EWTN, Global Catholic Radio.